What's up, Disciple Makers? This is your host, Dave Stovall, and you're listening to the Disciple Makers Podcast. Thanks so much for joining me today. We've been working through each track session from our forum last year, and up next is TCM International Institute featuring Jordan Sheets. TCM exists to develop Christian leaders for significant service through higher learning so that every single nation will have effective leaders of disciple-making movements impacting their churches, cultures, and countries for Christ. So make sure to check out tcmi.org when you're done listening to this episode. All right, everybody, let's jump in and hear from Jordan Sheets. Enjoy. Well, good, good morning. Thank you all for being here. Uh, my name is Mike Eagle. I'm uh, an elder at Harpus Christian Church, part of discipleship.org, and also a student at TCM. And I really am here because I have the distinct pleasure of introducing you to the speaker today, Jordan Cheese. And I would tell you that this man here, in my estimation of getting to know him, is probably the most interesting man in the world. <laughs> Tell you why he's the most interesting man in the world. He not only is a professor of biblical studies at TCM International Institute, he's been a professor at uh, prestigious universities around the globe, uh, including uh, the Netherlands and Austria and uh, Tyndale uh, University in the, in the, the Netherlands. Netherlands right? yeah. Also in Portland, Oregon. Uh, he has extensive uh, knowledge of languages, speaks three uh, plus languages, fluent in not only English, which he's going to be speaking in today, but uh, <laughs> German, um, uh, uh, Hebrew, modern day Hebrew. He's an expert in Old Testament Hebrew, as well as Greek, as well as Aramaic. And uh, I'm probably not even touching on all the languages. <laughs> not only that, he plays the guitar, uh, the piano, the trombone, and another instrument that I can't pronounce. <laughs> and, and if that's not enough, he holds three black belts. And uh, he uh, is a very interesting man. I'm so uh, delighted to hear from him today and impart his knowledge. 20 years of experience with TCM. Uh, he has five children, a wonderful wife of 25 years. Uh, and uh, he's just a humble, godly man. And uh, could we give him a warm welcome? <laughs> All right, I am not interesting, so we'll just kind of, we got to knock that down about 10 steps. Um, it is really a privilege to be here this afternoon, and uh, we'll have four total sessions. I understand people will probably be going all around. This one, we're going to be dealing with following Jesus uh, in relation to both his teaching and example in relation to fasting. Later this afternoon, we'll be speaking in, in relation to following Jesus and his teaching uh, on prayer, and then tomorrow following his example in prayer, and then the last one will kind of bring everything together in following Jesus throughout uh, the last almost 2,000 years and looking at how that has worked itself out. Um, I came to faith when I was uh, 16 years old, actually on my 16th birthday. I was led to faith through, of all people, a karate instructor. There were many other people involved in that process. So that certainly, one of those key people was my mother who was praying for me and my brother 
and uh, her Bible study where she would say, share all of the woes of what happens with teenage boys. <laughs> and, uh, and I grew up in a home uh, where both of my dads, uh, my biological father and my adopted dad, both had major problems with drugs and alcohol high functioning in the sense that they could work and, uh, and life could go on in that sort of way, but terrible in many other ways uh, growing up in that environment. And the Lord really used uh, these group of people who came around me, two of them for sure from karate, just at the right point at the right time, and pointed me uh, to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, and life has been radically different since that point forward. Lots of ups and downs. Uh, of the five children, uh, one of them passed away a few years ago. Uh, she was 18. Super rough. Uh, she was severely handicapped as well, too. And uh, a part of our lives in these 25 years, actually, it relates to these opening verses, which are absolutely my life verses. We have sold uh, and given away our earthly goods, uh, I think, uh, four times in a very significant way, uh, moved. Uh, we've lived in three different countries, uh, the United States being one of those, but Austria, the Netherlands, who spent a decade overseas. And uh, we've been blessed by many believers. Most of the time when we sell all, all of our things, our home is filled through the generosity of believers who are getting rid of their secondhand goods, which, by the way, were better than usually what we would have been able to get firsthand. So uh, we've been blessed in that sort of way. But let's just take a moment and pray, and we'll jump into things. Lord, we thank you for the privilege of being able to be here together this afternoon. And, and God, we just pray that you would move in our hearts and lives. We pray that we would that we would certainly understand more in relation to fasting now in this moment. But Lord, I pray that you would move us to obedience in you. And so, Lord, we pray through the power of your Holy Spirit that you would work and that you would move in this room. And Lord, we pray for this overall conference, God, that you would be working in the midst of this time, that you would be motivating, empowering, encouraging people from all different walks of life, uh, Lord, really toward this, this greater goal of making disciples of all nations. And so we pray these things in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. If you have a Bible, feel free. We're going to be in Matthew. Um, I should say for the last couple of years, I have been reading the Gospel of Matthew almost every day. Uh, I was just one, it was actually inspired by a quote from Dirk Jonkind, who's a professor uh, in, at Cambridge, at, works at Tyndale House in Cambridge, who's an expert in relation to the Greek text of the New Testament in particular. Uh, having worked on one of the oldest codexes, so actual books uh, that we have of the New Testament. And he made the simple comment, he was talking about a textual variant that showed up, that is to say another reading in the Gospel of Mark, that actually, he made this simple statement, likely this textual variant came in because the copyist had the text of Matthew memorized. And so he introduced this variant into the text. And I thought to myself, this is somebody in a totally different era who knew the word of God so well that they had another one of the gospels memorized to the point that when they were copying another text, that they introduced a textual variant uh, because of their memory of that text. And I thought to myself, you know, 
maybe I could do a little more effort in relation to studying the text of Scripture and how well do I really know the Gospels. And so the Gospel of Matthew has been one of my favorites, but if you were to ask me what my other favorite is, I would tell you it's John. If you were to ask me what my other favorite is, I would say it's the Gospel of Luke. And if you ask me what the other one is, I would say it's the Gospel of Mark. So uh, it's just the one that I've been in, but I've been reading it over and over and over in Greek and modern Hebrew uh, because I love modern Hebrew, not because it has necessarily any value, but the Greek text, just soaking it in over and over. And obviously, when we look at the Gospel of Matthew, uh, we see that it's pointing all toward these final verses. So Matthew 28, 16 to 20, we know them. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain uh, to which Jesus had directed them. And just a few chapters earlier, Jesus makes that statement. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teach them to be obedient to as much as I've commanded you, and know that I'm with you always to the end of the age. Uh, just a quick note, that I am statement shows up all throughout Scripture. And this is the key confidence that God gives to his people when he gives them a project that is bigger than themselves. And he will come in and he will make the statement, thinking in relation to Moses, who's been called to bring the, the people out of Egypt. And the key confidence in chapter 3 of the book of Exodus is the Lord says, I am with you. I'm with you. And we see it all the way through. Jesus is giving it here. The clear focus of the Gospel of Matthew is to make disciples of all nations of Jesus the Messiah. We see that in uh, 2819. And there is, in the final verses, there is only one finite verb. Uh, that is to say, the main verb in this section is the verb to make disciples. We have three participles that are dependent on that main verb. But the main issue is to make disciples. The closing, uh, the closing words of, of the book from the resurrected Jesus to the 11 remaining disciples reassured the disciples uh, that he was indeed the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. This is important because as the disciples came reading 1617 into the first part of 18, it says that there's a mixed response among the disciples. We don't actually have some doubted. We don't actually have that. It is a mixed response among them. That is to say, they worshiped him and they doubted at the same time. The one that they had been following in the course of these last several days had just been falsely accused, tortured in a very brutal sort of way, and nailed to a piece of wood, and he died. And so Jesus is, is coming in and he's speaking to the disciples, and he goes directly after that issue of the doubt. And he just looks and says very clearly, I've risen from the dead. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. In other words, he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Because of that, therefore, he commanded them to make disciples of all nations. And this is an important aspect. Going is one of the key aspects of making disciples. This is the thing that has drawn my wife and I as we think in relation to the, the things that the Lord wants us to do. It's not just all about staying in one place. It's looking and taking in that there's this key aspect of making, of making disciples that has to do with going. 
by going, baptizing in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to keep all the things as much as he has commanded them. This is not a portion of the things that Jesus commanded. This is not just the basics. This is not just doing well the things that we know before we get to the advanced stuff. It's actually looking at all that Jesus taught and teaching teaching disciples to do these things, to actually know them and to put them into action all with the reassurance that as they made, make disciples or made disciples of all nations, he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords would be with them every generation of disciple makers to the end of this age of making disciples. Because of the, the kind of the movement of my life, I have sat in hospitals and places where I don't speak the language well, and there's a sense that death is near uh, with our we, our daughter who passed away so was severely handicapped, and we'd be there, and I would think in the middle of the night, Lord, did you just bring us here to just see her die? And the overwhelming reassurance in that moment, and one time, absolutely, it was audible in the room as I was staring into uh, this this area in Austria, the Wienerwald, and uh, the Lord just said, I, I haven't left you. I'm with you. This is the confidence that we have as we go and make disciples of all nations, that the King of kings and the Lord of lords is with us. Two acts of righteousness, and I, I would actually say we probably should add one more in there, uh, but two acts of righteousness that Jesus taught his disciples to do when you pray. This is chapter 6, verse 5. When you pray, 6.16, when you fast. And if we were to go to the previous section, we would say, when you give alms, when you do charitable giving. Three acts, in, in this case, we're talking about two acts of righteousness. Uh, he gives two of these and he actually practiced them himself. And that is, of course, fasting and prayer. The first place that fasting occurs in the Gospel of Matthew is starts in uh, four verse 1 chapter 4 verse 1 then jesus was led up to uh, led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil he fasted 40 days and 40 nights and afterwards he was famished the tempter came and said to him if you are the son of god command these stones to become loaves of bread but he answered it is written one does not live by bread alone but by every word that comes from the mouth of god then the devil took him to the holy city and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world, and their splendor, and he said to them, All these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil left him, and suddenly angels came and waited on him.
Hello, Disciple Makers Podcast listeners. I want to invite you to the 2022 National Disciple Making Forum here in Nashville, Tennessee on October 5th and 6th. Jesus had a strategy, a plan, and a roadmap for making disciples. In other words, he was highly intentional. He guided, coached, and developed his disciples into full-on disciple makers, and by living out the Great Commission, they changed the entire world. We're constantly gaining new insight about intentional discipleship as we look closely at Jesus. And if we're thoughtful and prayerful, we can apply many of those same practices today. So head on over to discipleship.org to buy your tickets for the 2022 National Disciple Making Forum. I look forward to seeing you there. The first mention of either fasting or prayer in the Gospel of Matthew, again, is found in 4, 1 to 11. And it's directly after Jesus' baptism by John and the heavenly declaration of who exactly Jesus was. And this is an important aspect. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. When we look in the three, the two other contexts, what we call the synoptic gospels, Mark and Luke, we see that that is the same context in which it appears in those other places. The only difference is in the gospel of Luke, there's actually a genealogy that traces from Jesus all the way back to God. And then it goes into this issue of temptation. So after the statement, Luke actually demonstrates, yeah, by the way, he is the Son of God, and we're going to trace it all the way back. Jesus was led into the wilderness to be tempted by, and when we see this diabolos, uh, 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 the slander, so not the devil, it seems that we should probably actually take the meaning that he's coming in and he's pushing in a particular direction that he comes in and he tempts him. According to Matthew, Jesus fasted for 40 days and 40 nights and then was finally hungry. Uh, Gospel of Mark, it says seemingly that he was tested or at least it leaves open the possibility that Jesus was tempted by the slanderer, by the adversary during this entire time period. But here in Matthew, it definitely is pointing in that it's at this point seemingly of weakness that he comes in. And the key issue is when we think about fasting, uh, when we say that we get hungry, so let's say we, we miss a couple of meals and then all of a sudden we're feeling a little bit, you know, like we could use something, uh, for the most part, we're not really starving, uh, even if we might use those actual words. The issue is at this point, with 40 days, when your body starts to tell you to eat again, it's actually an issue of life or death. At about the 40-day mark, all of us, if we were to go on this 40-day fast, if you don't eat again, you will die. Uh, Points before this, yeah, you got to be strategic. You need water and all of these sorts of things. But about the 40-day point, you are going to die. So Jesus is, is clearly at a moment, at least from our perspective, where there's weakness. So it's at this point of seeming weakness that the tempter, another name for Satan, shows up and tempts Jesus to turn the stones around him in the wilderness into bread to prove he is truly. And this is an interesting point in the text. In English, oftentimes we'll just put it straight into, uh, if you are the son of God, the, the son of God. It seems to be, and we, we, we have to be careful with Greek because sometimes the article does and does not have to be there. But in this case, clearly all the way through, 
There is no article in relation to uh, the term son. And it's almost like he's picking at it. God has already declared in the previous verses, this is my beloved son used with the article. Here at this point, it's like, are you a son of God? A little bit of a kind of teardown on him. Jesus does indeed demonstrate that he's the son of God. So Satan wants him to demonstrate that he's the son of God by changing the physical qualities of something. Jesus demonstrates that he's the son of God in a different way. However, not by turning the stones into bread, but by depending on God's word for life. In particular, by answering this temptation from Deuteronomy 8 verse 3. In other words, based on God's word, Jesus was going to wait for his father's provision. This is a very key issue in this passage. Listening carefully to Jesus' answer, now a different name, Hodiabolos, the slanderer, then takes Jesus to the edge of the temple and tempts Jesus to again prove, and it, it uses this term, and it seems to be he really is saying to prove that he is a son of God by throwing himself down so that the angels can save him, no less based on a, a quote from Psalm 91 verse 11. The devil sees the game that is being played here, that Jesus has answered the initial temptation with Scripture. In this moment of seeming weakness, and he now wants to twist things in just a way to get Jesus to do what he wants. Jesus again demonstrates he's God's son by resisting the temptation to misapply God's word and unnecessarily put God to the test, responding this time from Deuteronomy 6.16. 6, First one, book of Deuteronomy. Second one, book of Deuteronomy. In other words, Jesus was not going to misapply God's word to prove something that he already knew was true. For the final temptation, the slanderer takes Jesus to a high mountain to show him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And when we think about this, we, we understand that there's kind of some sort of vision that comes up in this moment and that the devil is kind of showing him everything. Gospel of Luke uses this. He says, in a moment, he showed him all of these things. Offering to give them to Jesus if he will just fall down and worship him. Although Jesus would eventually be given this and much more, think about 2818 that we've already read, it has been given to me all authority in heaven and on earth. That is coming. That is where the whole of the book is heading. Jesus commands satana. And this sort of phrase that we see here is an Aramaic phrase that sneaks into the pages. The adversary to go away because God alone was to be worshipped and served. Answering for a third time from Deuteronomy, this time Deuteronomy 6.13. In other words, the adversary had gone too far. And in the end, once the slander had left, Jesus' father did indeed help him in his extreme time of physical need, sending angels to serve him. And so Satan was tempting him in that moment with the previous temptation to try and make God do something. He makes it through this moment, and God is actually the one who intercedes at this point, at the exact moment 
when Jesus needed this to happen. In this first discussion of fasting in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus clearly abstained from food for 40 complete days. And this is an important point in the text because when you look at fasting and other traditions around the world, there are all sorts of different fasts. So the month of Ramadan, which is a holy uh, month in the context of, of Islam, you fast during the daylight hours and you feast at night. So in Islamic context, more food is consumed during the month of Ramadan than other times in the course of the year because you are abstaining in the course of the day. And so Jesus, in this context, he's actually going the entire time. And that's significant in relation to this text. On the one hand, his extreme fasting caused physical weakness, and so we see that in 4.2. You know, it's almost like this passing statement, then he was hungry. Of course he was hungry. And on the other hand, his fasting demonstrated an absolute dependence on God, his Father, through heartfelt obedience to his written word. And so we see three times in this context, each time Jesus is answering the temptation from the book of Deuteronomy from the book of Deuteronomy, from the book of Deuteronomy. In other words, fasting expresses a deep dependence on God and his word. The example is meant to demonstrate in looking at Jesus and his example, he wasn't simply going without food during this period of time. The key issue seems to be that he is meditating in this particular period of time, seemingly on the book of Deuteronomy. And that he's thinking through God's instruction on a regular basis during these 40 days of fasting. When we follow Jesus' example in fasting, one of the key things that we need to be thinking about is what we are going to meditate on when our stomach is telling us that it wants food. For many who have tried fasting, one of the key issues is, that, and people will say this, all I can think about is that I want to eat. Well, when those hunger pains come, you need to have something there that you put in that place. And Jesus is giving the example that his life is lived in dependence on God's word. And so as we look at this example, as we think about, okay, fasting, how do we go about practicing it? How do we model or how do we follow Jesus' example? One of these absolute key issues is the issue of what we're going to meditate on. And in particular, the challenge then is to meditate in relation to God's clear instruction. And to bring ourselves to the point that we understand that actually our life comes from God's word. That it's not just simply, simply something that we have every now and then, but it's something that really our actual lives depend on. That God is the one who leads us forward and not when somebody else comes along and brings whatever the challenge may be. Three challenges from Satan. If we move forward just a little bit more, so we're going to skip over uh, 543 to 48. That will be in the next section. We're going to skip over to chapter 6. 
So directly after commanding the disciples, this is, um, I'm not sure what page it's on, but it's going to be under the title heading of 6, 1 to 18. So direct, directly after commanding the disciples, therefore you are to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Jesus, Jesus continues to teach on how his disciples' righteousness is to surpass and be different from that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And there's a lot of misunderstanding in relation to this portion of the Sermon on the Mount. And sometimes it's, it's like, oh, Jesus is making it easier. Jesus is, is not making it easier. He's not saying now it's actually better to go and murder people because as long as you think good thoughts about them in your heart, that's okay. He's actually showing that the basic level of righteousness is what the scribes and the Pharisees are doing. So when we think, for example, I had a student who wrote his, his, uh, his master's thesis on the lex talionis. This is eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. And he demonstrated it's not like we understand in movies. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. And we've got some guy who looks like a, you know, the most evil murderer around. He's getting ready to go out and wreak havoc everywhere. That is actually meant to keep things at a, 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 a level of retribution that is equal to what was done to you. Uh, I am a long time, I've done martial arts for 33 years. I can tell you when somebody punches you in the face, you don't punch them back in the face one time. You hit them four, five, six, seven times. Street justice works like this. You hit me once, I go until you are on the ground. Biblical instruction, the basic level of righteousness is, I do not do back to you more than what you have done to me. And so as Jesus is giving this challenge, and he's speaking about this surpassing righteousness, He's speaking about something that has already been spoken about in the Old Testament, and that that is that God is going to do a transformation within the heart of his people, that he's going to cleanse and purify us from all of our sin and iniquity, our idolatry, that he's going to take out our heart of stone, he's going to replace it with a heart of flesh, and he's actually going to put his spirit within us. And that because of that, then there's the ability to live in a different way where not only do we do the right thing on the outside, but now there's even the right motivation from within because of the presence of God's spirit within our lives. By the way, this has already occurred. This sort of speech in relation to Jesus and the work that he's going to do has already occurred a couple of times in the Gospel of Matthew. Chapter 1, it seems to be that the Holy Spirit is working, brings about his conception. Chapter 3, when he is baptized, John says very clearly, I baptize you with water for the repentance of, of sin. So the moving away, the turning away from sin to return to the Lord. But the one who comes after me, he is going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. So as Jesus is speaking in this, he's speaking about a transformation, a surpassing righteousness that doesn't have to do, just do with the outward level, but has to do with an inward transformation. Jesus' concern in 6, 1 to 18 turns toward three key expressions of righteousness among God's people. 
charitable giving in 6, 1 to 4, prayer 6, 5 to 15, which we'll deal with in the next hour, and fasting in 6, 6 to 18. The disciples' righteousness is to surpass that of the scribes and the Pharisees in these three practices by doing them for the right audience, namely our Heavenly Father instead of other people. And so as we think about the practice of fasting and Jesus' teaching in relation to fasting, we have to get the audience right. It's not for anyone else. It's not actually for other people to see. It's not actually so that you get a reward from someone else. It's not uh, somehow to, you know, kind of awaken things uh, from other people. Instead, we do it before our Heavenly Father. This is the key issue with almsgiving. This is the key issue with prayer. And then he turns, if you move a little bit further to our issue now in this hour, in verse 16, to the issue of fasting. And whenever you fast, starting in verse 16, whenever you fast, do not look dismal like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces so as to show others they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that your fasting may be seen by others, or may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Jesus turns to the practice of fasting here in 6, 16 to 18. And similar to charitable giving and prayer, the hypocritical practice of fasting is one that announces to everyone what they are doing, in this case, through having a sad look on their face and rendering their face unrecognizable, making it clear to their audience of other people that they are fasting. This is where the warning goes. When we look throughout the, the context of the Old Testament, you put on sackcloth, you put on ashes, This is something that everybody else sees around you. And Jesus is changing the whole thing right now. He's actually making, through his teaching at this point, he is making a total game change in relation to fasting. And he's saying those things that have gone before, they're no longer to be practiced. In his context, the the scribes and the Pharisees, those who were the sort of folks who even were tithing from their spices. Among that particular group of people, they were still doing this sort of thing, and it was a way of letting other people know how incredibly righteous they were before God. And so in this moment, Jesus is giving a challenge, and he's making it clear that it is not to be done like this anymore. Fasting is not to be so that other people will see it, and so that other people will think that we're really good. Since the audience of their fasting was other people, they received their reward in full through the honor given by others. Oh, look at them. They're an incredible man, woman of God. Look at how devout they are. They fast two times a week. Uh, when we look in the Didache, so a teaching that's dated anywhere from the mid-50s all the way to the end of the 200s, 
AD, we see that the normal practice seemingly among the Jewish community was that you would fast every Monday and every Thursday. And Jesus is looking and saying, no, we're not going to do it like this, in this sort of way. We're not going to kind of give all of the signs so that everybody knows. Because the reason why you're doing it is because you desire the accolades from other people. The problem is, is when you serve from that place, you get exactly what you're looking for. You get the accolades of other people. In contrast, whenever a disciple fasts, they are to do what they normally would, anointing their head and washing their face. Now, there is some scholarly debate on this. But this would have been a normal practice, that you actually wash your face, you'd get up in the morning, you'd wash your face, you'd anoint your head with oil. Uh, evidently, you know, this is kind of like having, I, I don't need it, uh, but having, you know, some sort of hair product uh, so that you look appropriate. And Jesus is actually saying, go about the normal practice of your day. Look normal when you fast. And the disciple is to fast in secret, not appearing to fast to others, allowing their heavenly father to reward what is done in secret. So in thinking about this, and we're going to skip over some of these things, but Jesus in no way nullifies, and now speaking of all three, these expressions of righteousness. And this is an important point. In North America, these are not normal practices anymore. Almsgiving is the setting aside of money for the purpose of helping those who are in need. This is distinct from giving that would go to a local church, if we're going to think in those sorts of terms. Almsgiving is setting aside money for the purpose of helping people in need. He doesn't nullify it. When speaking in relation to prayer and fasting, he, he's not getting rid of them. When, when, when. So charitable giving, prayer, and fasting are all expected to play a significant role in the life of his disciples. However, Jesus' call to surpassing righteousness in these circumstances is away from the hypocritical practice of appearing to do these things out of devotion to God, and yet the real motivation is to be honored by others. Jesus' call to surpassing righteousness is to do these things in secret where our only audience is our Heavenly Father, the one who will ultimately reward us. Hey, I want to interrupt this episode real quick because I want to give a shout out to four of our key partners who will be leading track sessions at the National Disciple Making Forum coming up in Nashville, October 5th and 6th. Check out Awana for information on family discipleship at awana.org. Take a look at Mercy Multiplied for discipling women, especially women who need special support. Their website is mercymultiplied.com. Do you find yourself wanting to help in transitioning your church to a disciple-making focus? Then go to NavigatorsChurchMinistries.com for more resources. And lastly, should you need help with sustainable discipleship models, head on over to SustainableDiscipleship.com. I encourage you to join one of the track sessions that these organizations will lead at our forum. 
We want to thank Awana, Mercy Multiplied, Navigators Church Ministries, and Sustainable Discipleship for their support. All right, let's get back to the episode. When we, when we think about this, this last issue in the second, you have to move two paragraphs down, in the second mention of fasting in the Gospel of Matthew, the key issue is that the appropriate audience of our fasting is our Heavenly Father, same as the other two practices. Outside of abstaining from food, we should go about our normal day, however, with this actual awareness. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word going out from the mouth of God. So in his first significant uh, uh, section in teaching, actual teaching in relation to fasting, the key issue is getting the right audience. The key issue is, it certainly is abstaining from food during this period of time, but it's understanding that it's not now something that is declaring to the world out there. Instead, it's speaking something to our Heavenly Father. When we add this to Jesus' example, we understand that fasting then is also this issue of meditating. Meditating in relation to the Lord's instruction. Prayer becomes one of those ways of meditating on God's instruction, reminding ourselves of God's truth, expressing that devotion to his truth through prayer to him. In our last passage in relation to fasting, you'll have to skip over a section, is in 9, uh, 14 to 17. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, The wedding guests cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old cloak, for the patch pulls away from the cloak, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins, otherwise the skins burst and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed, but new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. The third mention of fasting in the Gospel of Matthew, of course, is here in 914 to 17, and comes directly after the calling of Matthew and the ensuing discussion of why Jesus was eating with tax collectors and sinners, namely that he had not come to call the righteous, but sinners. This is followed by a question from John's disciples of why they and the Pharisees fast much, but Jesus' disciples do not. Jesus' answered, Jesus's answer is in essence that it would be inappropriate for his disciples to fast while he is with them. And this is one of these key points that moves up uh, early in the Gospel of Matthew. And you have to answer the question, what, why is it that Jesus says, repent, return, for the kingdom of heaven has come near? And the most immediate answer to that, and we can talk about other things of his disciples living it out, but the most immediate answer is because the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords is the one who is speaking it to them. The kingdom has come because the King is actually in their presence. 
And so in this moment, it's not, it wasn't appropriate for the disciples to take moments of fasting because they were with the king. And while they're with the king, it's their responsibility, it's their privilege to take in every ounce of what he has in that moment to enjoy being in his presence. And boy, can you, can you wait for that? <laughs> I mean, just seriously. Looking to the moment when we're with the king. But he said, in this instance, it's inappropriate for them to do that. It would be like the groomsmen fasting at a wedding while the groom is still with them. It's a time to party, and they're going around with the king. There will be a time of fasting for Jesus' disciples. He makes that very clear but only after he is taken from them. Namely, after his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension into heaven. That whole period of time, until that moment, it seems to be that there's a cessation in relation to his disciples. But when the king returns to the heavenly father, sitting at his right hand, waiting to return sometime in the future, then they will fast. However, as Jesus notes in the two examples that follow, a new patch on old clothes is the first example, and then the second example is new wine and old wineskins, fasting will not be practiced by his disciples in the same way. If you have ever struggled with this, these verses, what in the world does that mean to put new wine and new wineskins not to mix them together, all of that sort of thing. He is saying you don't mix the old with the new. The former practice of fasting is gone. And now there is a new form of fasting. What is that new form? This is to say that what Jesus has already described in 6, 6 to 18 has made clear the contrast between the old and the new practice of fasting. It's not the outward sign. It's not putting ash, uh, um, uh, ashes on your head and sackcloth on your body, disheveling your face, letting everybody else know. It's none of those things anymore. And instead, now it's this new practice before the Heavenly Father. So again, the old practice of looking sad and disfiguring one's face, letting everyone know exactly what is happening, will be replaced by the new practice of looking as normal as possible while secretly fasting before our Heavenly Father in dependence on His Word. And so as we move into this, era, this new era, we sit in a totally different place as Jesus' disciples. The King shed His own blood for the forgiveness of our sins. We're not coming to him in the normal sense of repentance and, and all of these sorts of things, you know, to try and, you know, somehow win over his affection to us or somehow to forgive us. The king shed his own blood. Chapter one has already made it clear. The whole of the gospel is steering toward that point. She will give birth to a son and you will call his name Jesus, Yeshua, Savior, Salvation. For he will save his people from their sins. 
Chapter 26, he's sitting with his disciples, breaks the bread, and then he passes around the cup. This is my blood poured out for the sins for the forgiveness of many. We're not doing that sort of thing anymore. Instead, we're looking as disciples on this side of things, fasting before our Heavenly Father, independence on His Word, prayerfully speaking these things back to Him in these moments of fasting, living by the actual words that have come out of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords' mouth. When we think about the practice of fasting in antiquity, uh, how this began to roll itself out uh, among the early disciples, we see in the Didache that there was the practice of fasting and preparation for baptism. And both the person who was going to be baptized as well as the person who was going to do the baptizing were really commanded to fast beforehand looking to the Lord in the midst of that period of time. But also, it was a call among any of the others who were willing to enter into this as well to join them in fasting and looking to the Lord together. There were regular days of practice, and they did make it in a kind of distinction to the practices of the times that had come before the first third, or excuse me, the first uh, or the, the Monday and Thursday of each week would have been what they called the hypocrites. And then the call was, now let's shift it to a couple of different days because we are actually practicing this in a new way. And so it moved to Wednesday and Friday, all given as instruction in the midst of the Didache. When we look over the centuries, we see that in various times, fasting steps back into the forefront in particular movements. One of those movements was John Wesley. And of course, we know Methodism kind of springs out of that. I'm not sure that he really liked that name or would like necessarily what has unfolded in every way. But Wesley himself came in and the practice moved among this movement of people that saw just thousands of thousands of people turned to the Lord. Those who were serving fasted on Wednesday and Friday. He wouldn't even allow somebody to be ordained unless they were willing to participate in regular fasting. If you're wondering what that fast looked like, if you were going to fast on Wednesday, you would start Tuesday at 3 o'clock and you would go till Wednesday at 3 o'clock, and you would take a 24-hour period. Friday, you start on Thursday at 3, you break the fast Friday at 3. Practices among this. In my own life, fasting, I think probably like many of you, I first came across it in Richard Foster's book, speaking in relation to the celebration of discipline, hadn't really heard anything about it and then started reading about it. Then I read about John Wesley. And I only say this as a way of encouraging you, but then it became something in the midst of my life, something to practice. And the thing that I've been using over these years is in the context of fasting to keep key passages of Scripture close at hand. And that when those hunger pains come, that what you're doing is you're praying through those key passages. 
The one for me over all these years now has been Matthew 28, 18 to 20. And I'm praying that God will bring the mission that we have been given to make disciples of all nations to its fulfillment. And as those hunger pains come, as the times come to sit and go, yeah, I'm hungry. And then to turn in that moment and to pray uh, to the Lord that this would be fulfilled. Ultimately, the challenge seems to be that as we think about fasting is to change maybe some of the the not so healthy ways that we've been thinking about it, but now to bring it in line in the place where we're, we're meditating on God's word for this extended period of time, where maybe we take a 24 hour period, maybe we miss one meal, but we replace that not just simply with, I'm hungry, I'm hungry, I'm hungry, I wish I could eat, but instead to take that time and really to meditate in relation to God's word and to allow that to be a practice in the midst of our lives. I will say, as you, as disciple makers, and I'm assuming that's why we're all here in the midst of this, that this is going to be something that you challenge other people to do. And that as a part of your discipleship process, that you start bringing those brothers and sisters to the place that they begin to do this. I would recommend that you start by encouraging them to miss one meal. And in practicality, what that's going to mean is if they eat breakfast, lunch, and dinner, they're going to miss one of those meals, and they're not going to have a big snack after it. (laughs) And that you start in that place. But then that you begin to move to the place where that you now start to move that you miss two meals. And now that you take an entire day and that you start bringing this in, and the recommendation is as you're discipling people that you are helping them by also encouraging them to use particular passages that they're meditating on during this time of fasting. And sometimes this will be issues that they're dealing with in the midst of their life, and they need the truth of God's word. We live in an era where although every, you know, love is supposedly flowing around everywhere in every way, people don't know that God loves them. And to bring them somebody who is fasting to start thinking about this reality of God's love, the greatness, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this way. We're still sinners. Christ died for us to meditate on those things. But then to start taking something like an entire one of the gospels, and having that be something that you are meditating on. In the course of the last almost three years of going over and over and over the Gospel of Matthew, what I have found is every day now for me, and it wasn't the case necessarily before, and I, trust me, I've spent a lot of time in the Bible over these years of following Jesus. Every day now is a red-letter day. And what I mean by that is that Jesus points the way forward on a real, actual decision that I need to make in the course of the day. And it's actually his word that's pointing the way forward. The meditating on and allowing this to drive deep within us. And Mike and David, who are I think are going to come up and say something here now at the end, there is something unique that happens in this moment that God is working in us. And that as we miss these things, as we focus on the, the, the reality of God's word, that the whole, the course of our life 
changes and that it becomes more focused on the one who has created us and living in a way that's in accordance with how we have actually been made. That is the place in which we find true and real peace. Thank you so much for listening. Up next, we've got another TCM episode from another one of their track sessions. And I want to say just before I sign off here to check out TCMI.org. And I would love, love, love it if you would go on over to discipleship.org and buy your tickets for the forum, which is rapidly approaching. All right, y'all. I'll catch you on the next episode. See ya.